When Christians are changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ in a deep way, three things happen, at least three things. One, it brings to that person spiritual renewal. Two, it causes trouble. And three, it impacts other people. Let me say that again. When someone is changed by the gospel in a deep and profound way, it brings that person, it brings those people into spiritual renewal, into a sense of personal revival, a reviving of God's spirit. Two, it it brings with it trouble, sometimes serious trouble. And three, it has a broader impact on those around them. This is what we see in Ephesus. On a broader scale, really the entire city was caught up in this these three things. The, the, the Christians were impacted, there was revival, there was trouble, there was a riot, and the broader culture was deeply impacted. I once heard a preacher from England say that, kind of jokingly, when Paul went to a city and preached the gospel, there was either a revival or a riot. When I go to a city and preach the gospel, they serve tea. Revival, riot, or he says, when I come, it's just nice and calm and we have tea together. And that, concerning Paul anyways, that's true. When he came to a city, often there was an awakening and people by droves were saved or a lot of people were saved. There was a reviving work of the Spirit. The Spirit of God was renewing people. And when he visited cities he had been to before, often there was a renewing work of the Holy Spirit that he had was renewing from something prior. Or when Paul came to a city, often there was trouble. Trouble was stirred up. Interestingly, here in Ephesus, there's revival and there's trouble. There's revival and riot in the same city. We see the revival in the first half of the chapter, the sense that the Spirit of God is doing some powerful, positive things in the lives of Christians. And Reed covered this last week in detail, so I just want to briefly mention it. There were extraordinary miracles being done at the hands of Paul. Even miracles such that aprons or, or handkerchiefs that had touched his body were taken and And if it touched other people, they were healed or demons came out of them. Phenomenal miracles. There were exorcisms or people being delivered from evil spirits. There was a deep reverence for God that came over the people in mass. It says a fear came over them. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled or lifted up or exalted or magnified. Probably the most amazing, and I would, I would suggest, suggest the, the most authenticating evidence of the Spirit's activity is what is described in verses 18 and 19. And Reed spent much time on this. Let me just read very quickly so we can get a picture again of what happened. Verses 18 and 19. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magical arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Wow! That's 
That's pretty amazing. This public repentance on a large scale. Think about what this is saying. There were believers came and they were confessing and divulging their practices. Believers were coming out into the open and confessing and their, their practices and their evil sins. And among those believers, there were some who practiced magical arts and they brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. It's amazing. In the sight of all. They didn't go back home, start a bonfire in the backyard and burn their stuff. They brought it, I don't know, to the town square or somewhere publicly and burned them in the sight of all. This was public repentance and this was costly repentance. The, 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 the amount of money that, these, 50, that these, these books and scrolls of incantations, magical arts was worth was 50,000 pieces of silver. Again, somewhere between maybe a million, eight million. I have a commentary that says it was worth about five million. We don't know for sure. That's a lot of money. People were willing to part with their things that cost that much money. This is just the way my mind works. I'm like, okay, if that was like a thousand people, which would be a lot of people bringing stuff to burn in the city. If there's a thousand people or a thousand families, that's $5,000 worth of books and scrolls that each person or each family was burning in the bonfire. It's amazing. God was at work powerfully. But... There was also a riot. God was at work, and in response, there was a riot. We see this in the second half of the chapter. I read a few of the verses. It goes all the way to the end, to verse 41. And the riot came about for two reasons. I'll sum it up this way, and then I'll, and then I'll break it down. The people whose gods were being cast aside or gods that were losing worship, people whose gods were losing worship were getting angry. The goddess Artemis was losing worshipers in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a very important city in the Roman Empire. It was probably one of the, the top three or four cities, had three to 400,000 people. It was known as, it was a port city, so it was, it was important commercially or, or um for for merchants to come and sell their goods. But probably what Ephesus was most known for, not just in in the immediate area, but in all of Asia, was the Temple of Artemis. The Temple of Artemis was this huge, magnificent structure. It actually is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it was magnificent. It was probably beautiful. It was huge. 420 feet long, 200 feet wide. It was made up of 127 of these pillars that were seven feet in diameter each. And of course, in Ephesus and in the entire region, this was the place of worship. This was an important place for worship. So when people were turning away from worshiping Artemis to worshiping Jesus, it caused Trouble. It caused trouble. The demonic forces certainly didn't like it, and the worshipers of Artemis didn't like it. 
But there there were some other players at, at work as well. The second reason for the riot was that those who made money from the worship of Artemis, they were businessmen who made money from the worship of Artemis, were stirred up because they saw their revenues declining. Isn't that interesting? Demetrius was a silversmith. He made shrines to Artemis. He was part of a kind of a silversmith guild or trade union or something like that. He saw his revenues or his income going down for a couple of years, and he, or maybe, maybe not even a couple of years. And he says, we've got to do something about this. So he gets the other silversmiths and the other tradesmen, and he says, you see that our wealth comes from the worship of Artemis. We've got to stop this man, Paul. We've got to stop him. We've got to stop the spread of the gospel. He is telling people that things made with hands are not really God. Isn't that interesting? It's like, well, okay. Anyways. Um, So he stirred up the tradesmen. Stirred up, really, I mean, a large portion of the city. He, he took this, this, this uproar to the theater. The theater was this large amphitheater that would seat maybe 25,000 people or so. And wh- the way I read this chapter, it seems like the entire theater was full of people. And it was a riot of first order. There were people chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. There were other people chanting other things. The crowd was in confusion. Sounds like a riot, doesn't it? And some people had no clue why they were even there. That's what it says. Um, the mob, mobs back then are very similar to mobs today, aren't they? Let's just whip people up into a frenzy and see if we can get something done. When people's gods are taken away, they get angry and they get violent and they get crazy. Back in the first century in Ephesus and today in the 21st century in America, when you begin to take away what people really value or when it's taken away or when they lose grasp of it, they get angry. Tim Keller, and this is not really even the main point of my message, but I think it's worth noting that that idolatry is still around today. It's alive and well. Idol worship is. Tim Keller says you can make an idol of anything, even good things. An idol is something, even a good thing, is something that when it's taken from you, you get angry. And you feel like, I can't live without that. That is an idol. So here in Ephesus, we see this amazing revival. We see this insane riot. Eventually, thankfully, the town clerk got things settled down. But what accounts for this revival and this riot? How do we make sense of this? What what happened in this city that accounts for this revival and this riot. What does the text tell us? Some might say, well, Paul came to town. It's like, that's true. Or the Spirit was poured out, and that's true as well. 
But what did the Spirit use to permeate the city in such a way that it brought about this beautiful and glorious revival, the height of which was this public demonstration of repentance, turning from idolatrous worship and evil practices, brought about that and also brought about a riot. Well, there's a verse that I believe helps us to understand what happened in Ephesus. And in fact, I think it's kind of the integrating glue that helps us, helps bring all to get all the things together, all that happened in Ephesus, the revival and the riot. And I think it's verse 20. Verse, cha- verse 20 says this, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. There's three parts of this verse that stand out to me at least right away. The first word is the word Lord. The word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. The word concerning Christ, he's the Lord. But what does Lord mean? The Greek word kurios is translated Lord in our English Bibles in the New Testament Its Hebrew counterpart, maybe you've heard this word before, is Adonai. You ever heard the word Adonai before? I'm going through a a book on the names of God with my my kids, my younger three kids, and I think they might remember what Adonai means. Adonai means owner and possessor of all things. The word of the Lord of the Lord Jesus Christ was increasing and prevailing mightily. Second, the second thing that stands out to me is that the word of the Lord was increasing. I think what this means is that it was spreading. It was, it was spreading broadly. It was spreading to all corners of Asia at this time. It reminds me of the parable of the sowers, how the sower went out and he just sowed seed generously and liberally sowed it on the rocky ground and on the shallow soil and he sowed it among the where the thorns would grow and he sold, and he sowed it in good soil and the word of the lord was spreading and increasing greatly so much so that verse 10 of chapter 19 says this all the residents of asia heard the word of the lord both the jews and the greeks That's quite an increase. Paul came, set up shop, and the word of the Lord spread so widely that it says all of the residents in the entire province of Asia had heard the word of the Lord. But then it says that the word of the Lord also prevailed. The word prevailed means to be to overpower. So it's not just that it spread broadly so that many heard, but it also prevailed mightily among those who received it and believed it and obeyed it. It went deep. Okay, So there's two dimensions to the word of the Lord. It it was spread broadly, it increased broadly, and it went deep. It went deep in the people who received it and trusted it and sought to obey it. You see, this revival did not spring up overnight. 
I think, and, and neither did the riot. I think we often think of revival in terms of, it's probably an American-made sort of thing, the revival meeting or the revival weekend. Maybe someone comes through town and sets up, they wouldn't set up tents now, but they rent a, a venue and have a weekend of meetings and that's revival or a crusade or something like that. But Acts 19 says that Paul, or actually it's Acts 20, says that Paul was in Ephesus for three years. He set up shop for three years. And listen to how his ministry is described there in Ephesus. It's amazing. Remember, the word of the Lord increased, continued to increase and prevail mightily. Here's what Acts 19 verses 8 to 10 says. This is Paul's ministry. It says he entered the synagogue and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So Paul, when he came to town, as he normally did, he went to the synagogue. He sought out the Jews and the God-fearers and preached there for three months. When people were stubborn and and continued to resist him, he took took the disciples that were made, and he went to a place called the Hall of Tyrannus. A man named Tyrannus owned a hall, and he let Paul use it for two years. Now, um, in your Bible, at the end of verse 9, there might be a little number there where it says he reasoned daily in the hall of Tyrannus. If you follow that number down to the bottom of the page, it might say something like this. Some manuscripts add from the fifth hour to the tenth. That is from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Some manuscripts add this little bit that that he taught in the hall of Tyrannus daily from the fifth hour to the tenth or five hours a day. Five hours a day he was teaching and persuading and dialoguing and proclaiming the word of the Lord. Now, again, this is just the way that I think. I'm like, okay, two years, five hours a day? Let's just say he took a day off. Six days a week, five hours a day, 30 hours a week, 1,500 hours a year? Paul was proclaiming and teaching and dialoguing and and persuading for 3,000 upwards of 3,000 hours in the the hall of Tyrannus alone. And then there was a time he was in the synagogue for three months. Paul was proclaiming the word of the Lord. And people were being transformed and it was unsettling the culture upsetting things. In Acts chapter 20, Paul speaking with the elders of the Ephesian church. He's looking back on his time there. Paul describes his own ministry this way. In verse 20, he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. 
And I taught you in public and from house to house, testifying to both Jews and Greeks. So in other words, he taught them publicly in the hall of Tyrannus, but he also went from house to house. Paul wanted them to be grounded in the word of the Lord. And they were. Verse 27, Paul says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That's of chapter 20. And verse 31, Paul says, Remember that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. I just, I read these things. I'm like, oh my goodness. You think the Ephesian church was discipled well in the word of the Lord, in the scriptures? You bet they were. I mean, not that everyone sat under Paul's teaching every day, of course, but we're talking serious labor from Paul, pouring over the scriptures, teaching and explaining and persuading and preaching and rebuking and dialoguing and answering questions for for three years. These believers in Ephesus were immersed in the word of the Lord under Paul's teaching. Later, Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, of course, his, his, letter, his letter, Ephesians. And unlike most of his other letters, he didn't have to address a local controversy. He didn't have to address false teachers that had snuck in or false teaching that was being embraced. In fact, instead, he starts the letter with what some have called the longest sentence in the Bible, which is basically one long praise. You, when you go home today, okay, read Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. It's amazing. It's the most amazing sentence in the Bible. It's a, it's a run-on sentence, okay? But, uh, but that's all right. Uh, it's really good. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. And then he just sets out unpacking all of these blessings that are ours in Christ. That's what Paul started his letter with when he wrote to this Ephesian church. Their lives had been transformed by the word of the Lord. And the change was obvious in Acts chapter 19. The believers in Ephesus were taught not just how to get saved, not just the things that they had to believe in order to be saved and go to heaven someday. They certainly got that. But they were taught for three years what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ in very practical ways. They were taught that a believer is one who receives God's truth and humbly bows the knee to Jesus as Lord and seeks to follow him. Our culture has been inundated with a cheap, easy kind of believism. Just give, give me the minimum amount I need to believe and go to heaven and I'm good. That's, that's, not, what, that's not how Paul discipled this church. I love the way the believers are described in Acts 19. It says that they were part of the way. 
the way. Verse 9 and verse 23 describes the, this Christian community as the way. There's other places in the book of Acts as well. Now, the word way is just a generic word describing road or highway or path or journey or something like that. But with the definite article, the, in front of it, the point is clear. These were men and women and families who were committed to the one who called himself the way, Jesus Christ. And they were committed to following him no matter the cost. And you know that's that's the call of Christ, don't you? Jesus doesn't ask us to pray a prayer. He doesn't even ask us to mentally agree with some basic Christian facts, although that's certainly important that we understand the basic Christian truths. But Christ's call at its most simple is this, follow me. Follow me. Follow me. Follow the one who says, I am the way. Jesus himself said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what these Ephesian believers exemplified. That's what they lived out. The word of the Lord prevailed. It overpowered these believers in Ephesus. And they believed and followed the Lord Jesus. And this is what it meant. They were now out of step with the wider Ephesian culture. Massively out of step with it. They weren't going along anymore with the culture at large. Can I, be, can I just be blunt just for a moment? I mean, I, I am concerned that in the name of engaging the culture, some well-meaning Christians simply end up adopting the values of this world and don't engage at all. The culture engages them. So these Ephesian believers, the word of the Lord went deep. It prevailed upon them. It spread broad as well, but it prevailed upon these believers. And here's specifically how the word of the Lord prevailed in the lives of these believers, the effect it had on society at large. They had a new Lord. It was Jesus, not Artemis. Artemis had been dethroned from their hearts along with money and other false gods that they trusted in. They belonged to a new community, the church, not the temple community. They had a new allegiance to the invisible kingdom of Christ, not Rome or the civic pride of Ephesus in all of her visible beauty and glory. They were, they were on, they had been, they'd been stripped of any um, infatuation with Ephesus. They had new priorities, even what they spent their money on. What was Demetrius worked up about and the other silversmiths? That Christians weren't buying their products anymore. Right? Isn't that what was happening? Christians said, we don't need any shrines to Artemis. Why would we buy that stuff? 
They burned their cultic materials. They stopped buying certain things. This thought came to my mind, all right? We enjoy watching movies as a family. We often do on Friday nights with pizza. And, and as you know, you know it's, it's harder and harder to find decent movies that don't have so much trash. And I'm not a fuddy-duddy, okay, about stuff like this. But there's just, it's, just, it's hard to find decent movies without a bunch of garbage. What if Christians, millions of them across this nation, just said, we will no longer go to certain movies and rent certain movies and be entertained in the same ways that people who do not know Christ are entertained? Do you think, do you think that some would feel the pinch of that? Yeah. I do. I do. I do. The culture was changed through these believers who had been changed. The worship had changed. The goddess Artemis was losing worshipers. Do you know how many worshipers of Artemis there are today in the world? Guess. Zero. There are none. There aren't any. Christians, by their, by their changed lives, changed the culture, changed the, the economy of the city. The temple and the shrine craftsmen lost revenues and eventually went out of business. The best way to change things around you, and I'm thinking like start concentric circle, start close and then move your way out. Family, workplace, the wider culture. The best way to change things around you is by you being changed. It's by you being transformed and then living out the implications of that in your home, your workplace, and out in public, and wherever God would call you. So do you want to be used by God to have impact on the world today? I I think you do. I think every genuine Christian does, really does. And I'm not even thinking like, let's, you know, change the world today, tomorrow, right? I'm just thinking like, do you want to have impact on your family, on your neighborhood, on your friends, in the place that you work? We want this church to have impact in the wider culture. If we want these things, and I think we do, then the word of the Lord must prevail in us mightily. It needs to go deep, brothers and sisters. It really does. It needs to change us from the inside out. It must overpower us. It must overpower you and change you robustly. That's how it happened in the city of Ephesus. Not with a passive approach to the word of the Lord. The people were absolutely immersed in the word. Sitting under Paul's teaching day after day. And so, it's good for you to be here and sit under teaching and preaching on Sundays and to listen to podcasts and to be part of Bible study groups. That's good. You should do that. But here's what I want to end this morning. 
you know, we can't replicate what Paul did in Ephesus, right? I mean, gosh, thousands of hours. And I don't think we're supposed to. Here's what's amazing. Each born-again Christian has the book that God has given us and a resident teacher inside of us. Jesus called him the spirit of truth who will lead his people into all the truth. He leads us into all the truth. He reminds us of the things the Lord has said. Now, I love that word remind because, because you've you got to get it in your mind for you to be reminded of it, right? Remind. Re-bring it back to mind. So what if, with the Bible open, you sat under the Spirit's teaching day after day, week after week, for years? Don't think, God, I've, I've got to figure it all out in the next week, or by the end of February or something. Here's what would happen. The word of the Lord would prevail powerfully in you. The gospel of Jesus Christ would transform you from the inside out you would experience spiritual renewal. You might also experience a little trouble. And the impact you would make on those around you would be incalculable. And I'm not saying that in some grandiose way. I'm just saying over, the, over your lifetime. Okay? Think George Bailey, all right? And It's a Wonderful Life. The impact of his life. You guys read, seen that movie? Okay. Um, that can be, all right? That's all of us. When the word of the Lord prevails mightily in us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for this, this book you've given us. It is no small thing that you have revealed to us your glory and your name and your holiness and your actions in the world, and your purpose for your people, and the purpose of your name being spread to all the nations of the world. It's no small thing that you have given us this in a book we can open and understand. But you've also given us a teacher to help us understand it. And I pray, Father, for the Spirit of Truth, your Holy Spirit, certainly to start with what was talked about today, to drive these truths deep into our hearts that this word might prevail in us, what has been spoken today. And then that we would be encouraged and determined with the help of your spirit to immerse ourselves in the word of the Lord and be changed by it deeply so that we might have impact for your name's sake. I pray all of this in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.